I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. We'll be closing out this chapter next week, Lord willing. This morning, Matthew chapter 5, and the words to which I would call your attention come to us in verses 38 through 42. Matthew 5, verses 38 to 42. As we read God's Word, we do it as an act of worship, and it is inspired, inerrant, and infallible. Let's give attention to it now. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, Let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Please pray with me. Our Lord in heaven, we ask for your blessings now on the preaching of your word along with its reading. Uh, Lord, would you convict and strengthen us by this word and help us to live as citizens of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, we pray in his name, amen. These words that we are looking at this morning from verses 38 to 42 have, by some have been classified as some of the hardest words of scripture. Uh, Commentators will refer to these as hyperbole, in other words they're saying uh, this is a total exaggeration on Jesus' part, it's driving home a point that we're not really expected to live by. Others completely reject them. This is hard language. Nobody can actually do what Jesus is asking us to do. And, and of course, there's some truth in that, isn't there? There's nothing that Jesus has commanded you to do that you can fulfill perfectly. The principle of sin is still within you. And so where Christ demands obedience even in the inner man, you can't do that. And so we have to look to Christ. He is our whole righteousness. But as we look at these words, especially as we think of the context of the people who heard them, we will see that there are some very real applications we can take away from these verses. The first thing to think about, though, is that your instinct and my instinct by nature is a bad instinct. When we read of the man Uzzah, who reached out his hand when the ark was falling off of the cart that the oxen was pulling and he was struck dead because of that disobedience, one of the things that we get from that is is our very impulse. When I don't think at all, I still act sinfully. My very impulse is to rebel against God because I am a child of Adam by nature. All that corruption is there. And so Scripture does not ever advise you to trust your instincts. Do you know that? All of this language, love yourself, trust yourself, build up your self-esteem, all of that is encouraging you to live against Scripture. Instead, 
Christ instructs you to entrust yourself to God's revelation in His Word. The Bible, not instinct, is to teach you how to think and feel. It is, in some sense, a a roadmap to get back to real humanity as we were created in the garden. In our passage this morning, Jesus is confronting some of your very basic instincts. You have an instinct for revenge, don't you? We we rejoice when people get theirs, as long as those people are not these people. (laughs) You have an instinct for feelings toward those who seek your harm. Here, Jesus is very plainly telling you and me to resist those instincts. And so what we'll find in the passage is that Jesus is instructing you and me not to be selfish with our honor, not to be selfish with our possessions, our material well-being, or of our time. I want to, I think it's very important here that we begin by trying as far as we can to put ourselves in the shoes of the folks who are hearing this sermon. These folks had a legal context. They, of course, had God's law, the first five books of the Bible, which they referred to as the Torah. But they also had other writings called the Mishnah and the Talmud. The Mishnah was the rabbis had taken time to uh, um, make application of God's law to say, well, What if a man stole a piece of wood and then he polished that piece of wood and we got it back in an improved condition? What's the penalty? And they defined all of that in the Mishnah. It covers agricultural and ritual and civil and criminal and temple-related laws. And it presents a multiplicity of legal opinions And then on top of that was the Talmud. It was a commentary on the Mishnah. So today you might walk into an attorney's office and you see on the wall, hopefully, volumes of books. What are those books? They're legal opinions. They are case law, looking sometimes at the Constitution. And and when we had this case, what was the finding? How was the Constitution or civil or criminal law applied in this case What's the precedence? In Israel, legal opinions were not based on a constitution. They were based on the application of the Mosaic law code. What did Moses say? How do we use that? How do I apply that when two men are fighting over one cow and it has three legs? They were based on the application of this code... It was interpreted, it was applied by rabbis and recorded in the Mishnah. In verse 38 of this chapter, of Matthew chapter 5, Christ, as he has done in each of the previous five antitheses, this you have heard that it was said, but I myself say to you, Jesus as the supreme rabbi, God in the flesh, sits down to explain another principle. You have heard that it was said, we note in verse 38, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That 
phrase is found in three places in Moses' law. We find it in Exodus 21, verses 22 to 24, and I'll ask you to turn there now. Hold your place with me in Matthew 5 and turn over to Exodus 21. It's found here. It's found in Leviticus chapter 24 and in Deuteronomy chapter 19. We're looking at Exodus 21, 22 to 24. Some wonderful application from this passage. But we'll get the flavor of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth here. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out. But there is no harm. The one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him. And he shall pay as the judges determine. But if the child is harmed, I'm adding that, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. So the Mosaic Law Code here is prescribing requirements and limitations on the application of justice. God is describing for His people what justice is to look like. You remember... They're sinful, like you and me. And so for them, like you and me, justice will normally be perverted. So God sets down a law for them. If you took someone's life, your life was required. This goes all the way back to the Noahic covenant. Blood for blood. If you took someone's eye, listen... Your life was not required. That's the limitation of the eye. Your eye was. If someone punches you in the face, you cannot kill him. So the code is prescribing both a requirement and a limitation. The code defined fairness in the application of justice. It's a similar case in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. It was never, ever okay for someone to take justice into his own hands. God carefully instructed his people that godly justice was objective. Not based upon a knee-jerk reaction. If you go to Leviticus 19, we read there in verse 18, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. It is not okay for you to bear out your personal grudge, even if he insults your mama. Also, think about this. In the case of this injured woman and the injured child, retribution would not have happened immediately. There is a process. Harm occurred. But then it had to be assessed by a judge within Israel. You take your complaint to the judge. And then the judgment is handed down. Even where the husband uh, levies a fine, the judges determine how that fine is meted out. It would have taken time. Time in which the harmed party could have chosen Mercy instead. In verse 39, 
Jesus gives the antithesis to the standard. Notice what he says there, Matthew 5, verse 39, going back to the gospel. But I myself say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Do not resist the one who is evil. One thing I think is important to understand as you read the language here, Jesus is not speaking in the imperative. Sometimes he does. This is not a command. This is proverbial sort of language. Literally, Jesus said to them, I am saying to you, I myself am saying to you not to stand up to evil. It probably is rightly translated the evil one like the Lord's prayer. It does have an article. It is the evil one. Note how very strong Jesus makes this language. It would be one thing to tolerate somebody who is just. If, if a good man comes to you and, and he's seeking to press you in a certain direction, don't resist him. But Jesus is not asking you to tolerate someone who is just or righteous or that you consider upstanding. Jesus calls upon his followers not to resist one who is evil. Now we ought to note that in just a couple of chapters, in chapter 7, verse 11, he's going to call everyone there evil. So there's the statement. And if we were left at that statement, do not resist the evil one, no, one, no doubt we'd struggle with it even more than we do. What does he mean? But Jesus didn't leave it there. He's given us five illustrations so that we will understand exactly what he means. He illustrates the principle in these points. And we're going to, for the sake of time, combine these five illustrations into three points. Do not be concerned about your honor. Do not be concerned about your physical well-being. And do not be concerned about your time. First of all then, from verse 39... Do not be concerned about your honor. Jesus continues there in verse 39. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. That's a command. That's an imperative. You must turn to him the other cheek. Now this is an interesting phrase, isn't it? And it has been misapplied in history. Last week we thought about a man by the name of Minnow Simons who forbade his followers to take oaths in court. They were not allowed to take vows because Jesus said, do not vow. And we corrected Minnow's understanding. This is where the Mennonites come from, Minnow Simons. And when he's thinking about verses like Matthew 5.39, Minnow said, the regenerated do not go to war. So they wouldn't take up swords. Nor do they engage in strife. They are children of peace who have beaten their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning forks. It was Minnow's view that Christ did not take his kingdom by the sword but by the word. And so all of Christ's children fight their battles not with the sword or in our day with the gun or the cannon or the rocket, but by the word. 
And there's some sense in which Minnow's totally correct, isn't there? Christ's kingdom comes how? By the word sown into the heart bearing fruit. But is he correct to infer from passages like this that Christ forbids self-defense totally? Turn the other cheek. Should Christians refuse to take up arms and go to war? What would, what would Minnow say to an abused woman? Is it godly for her simply to endure the abuse? Because Jesus said to turn the other cheek. Absolutely not. But in order for you to understand Jesus' point, you need to know something of the Jewish community of Jesus' day. If someone struck you on the right cheek, Jesus commanded, you must turn to him the other also. First, what you should understand is that slapping someone on the cheek in Jesus' day was a form of formal rebuke. Today it would be like someone calling you on the phone and saying, I want to have a conversation. Let's, let's talk about this. It was a form of formal Rebuke, and there are several examples in Scripture. Think, a few weeks ago we looked at Psalm chapter 3. And in Psalm 3, verse 7, David prayed, Arise, O Lord, strike my enemies on the cheek, break their teeth. David, in that psalm, is asking the Lord to be his vindicator. Rebuke my enemies. There's another illustration in Scripture from 1 Kings 22 and verse 24. Ahab wanted to go to war, and all of his prophets were saying, yes, it is God's will for you to go to war, Ahab. And so Ahab called the prophet who was always against him a man by the name of Micaiah. Micaiah began by telling Ahab what he wanted to hear, go to war, Ahab. And then Ahab said, no, tell me what you really think. And so Micaiah said, you're going to die. And Zedekiah, the son of Kenanah, came near and struck Micaiah on the cheek and said, how did the Spirit of the Lord go from me to speak to you? Zedekiah was rebuking Micaiah by slapping him on the cheek. So to strike someone on the cheek was a form of rebuke. This is not the picture of someone taking up fists and pummeling you to the ground. You understand? This is a very specific act of rebuke in Jewish culture. Now, in order to strike you on the right cheek, one of two things had to happen. Either you were facing a left-handed fella, which we might call a southpaw, or, what's actually going on here is a man is taking the back of his hand and slapping you across your right cheek. This is a backhanded rebuke. In Jewish culture, a backhanded slap was doubly insulting and humiliating. In the Mishnah, Bavakana, a rabbi, said, one who slapped another on the cheek must give him 200 dinars. In other words, you would take the man who slapped you on the cheek with his 
palm to court. And the rabbi, sitting as judge, would award you 200 dinars if he slapped him on the cheek with the back of his hand, which is more degrading than a slap with the palm. He must give him 400 dinars. And it goes on to say, this is the principle, listen closely, for assessing payment for humiliation caused to another. It will be evaluated in accordance with the honor of the one who was humiliated. This is Jesus' illustration. This is not abuse. This is not someone breaking into your home. This is not Christian warfare. This is a specific instance of someone coming to you in the marketplace and slapping you with the back of his hand and calling you out. The same law was applied for spitting on someone. For pulling his hair or for removing a woman's head covering in the market. It was bringing shame upon that person. In fact, a story is related of a man by the name of Hanan the Wicked. Hanan slapped another man with his palm, and that man took Hanan to court. And the judge, the rabbi in the case, told Hanan that he would have to pay the man he slapped half a dinar. Well, Hanan ran into a problem. He only had a whole dinar. And he sought out all of his friends to make change for him. Somebody give me half dinar so I can pay my fine and break my whole dinar. Well, nobody could do it. So Hanan fixed the whole situation by slapping the man again and paying him the whole dinar. When your honor is called into question, your inclination is to show your physical strength. How dare you insult me? Especially when someone comes to us with a righteous rebuke. And it's interesting that in the Mishnah, they wrestle with the fact that no one can rebuke well. Even if my sin is genuine, my impulse is to slander you. Who do you think you're talking to? How dare you? What do you think? You're not a sinner? You talking about my mama? Jesus calls you not to demonstrate physical strength, but to demonstrate spiritual strength. Your witness to be the light of the world is not to return violence for violence. You will show strength by entrusting yourself to the Lord, the one who is the avenger of the righteous. When someone rebukes you, don't just receive it, Turn to him the other cheek as well. This is what it means to show spiritual strength. Do not resist the one who is evil. Jesus gives us another illustration in verse 40 and in verse 42. And I'll combine these three illustrations to make one point. Not only are we not to be concerned about our honor. Don't worry about your honor when someone rebukes you. Receive it. 
Jesus says not to be concerned about your material well-being. The first picture is of someone taking another person to court in order to get a judgment against him. Let's read verse 40. And if anyone should sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. This is a picture of a man being taken to court before the rabbi, probably in the synagogue. The person being taken to court is likely poor. He doesn't have anything else to be taken away from him except his clothing. This is all that he owns of value. He's got a cloak and he's got a tunic. And so to settle a debt, he's being taken to court. And the guy that is suing him is so engaged in recovering this debt that he's willing to take that man's tunic. And Jesus says, don't just give him your tunic, let go of your cloak as well. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic. Now, in Jesus' day, it was common for a person to wear multiple layers of clothing. Some of you husbands do this when your wives change the thermostat at the house. You wear multiple layers of clothing. The tunic was a layer of clothing that was the base layers. Your t-shirt, the very first thing that you put on. And the individual in Jesus' illustration has two layers of clothing. He's got his tunic, the base layer, and he's got a coat. The Mosaic Law Code forbade anyone taking a man's cloak from him. In Exodus chapter 22, verses 25 to 27, we read this. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, in other words, as collateral for a loan, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. Don't ever keep his coat overnight. For that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? So you see, for the poor man, this coat served two purposes, warmth during the day and a blanket at night, maybe to lie on. And if he cries to me, the Lord goes on, note this well, I will hear him, for I am compassionate. In other words, when the poor man calls out to me for justice, I will hear him. So the one who's bringing the lawsuit in Jesus' illustration here is going around the principle. I will leave the cloak, but I'm going to take the tunic. He's keeping the letter of the law, isn't he? But is he keeping the spirit? Is he observing the fact that God loves mercy? Love and concern for your neighbor's well-being. Jesus, therefore, has instructed the poor man to let go of his cloak as well and leave the synagogue naked. In this way, although he himself is humiliated, he demonstrates the shame of the man who will sue him for his, clo- for his tunic. It is to say, in a sense, how dare you? Jesus is instructing the poor man to remember that the Lord will provide for him. The Lord is the one who's promised, I am compassionate, cry out to me. We see another place where we're not to have 
concern for our physical well-being in verse 42. If Give to the one who begs from you. And do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. There are indications that in Jesus' day, Jerusalem was a very poor place. The people there lived in poverty. You know, today's U.S. immigrants, the folks who immigrate here, many of them will work and send money back to the people who live in Mexico or El Salvador or wherever. They are here to work and to help provide for their families. This may and very likely was the case for people living in Jerusalem. Their family members living in other parts of the world sent money back to them to support them. So we read in Romans 15 verses 26 to 27 and also in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 verses 1 to 2 that even the Apostle Paul was raising money for the saints who were in Jerusalem. Why? Because they were poor. Probably especially poor because they were Christian converts and excluded from work. But throughout his word, God instructed his people to make provision for those who were poor among you. And as we think about these two illustrations, one of the things that we ought to ask is, has it become easy to close your heart to the poor? Maybe because you assume that they're all drug addicts. And no doubt drug addiction has driven many into homelessness and poverty. I saw a new style of homeless sign just this week. A man who had listed his cash app ID so that you could send money directly to his smartphone. Do we imagine that Jesus would have withheld compassion from the poor? There are times when giving and helping are indulgent rather than gracious. There are times when helping and giving are indulgent rather than gracious. But as God's people, we have to learn to discern between the two. It is not a godly habit to reject all. Jesus says to give to those who beg from you. And do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. We remember that even in the Old Testament, God forbade his people from harvesting their whole field. Leave the corners so that people can come and glean, which is what we find in the book of Ruth. Ruth gleaning in the field of Boaz. Why? Because he hadn't harvested it to provide for the poor among them. Here Jesus clearly teaches that if you are on the fence about giving or helping, you ought to lean into giving and helping. God loves the cheerful giver, according to 2 Corinthians 9-7. And one earlier than Jesus, a Jewish wisdom writer said this, let almsgiving be the treasure in your strong room and it will rescue you from every misfortune. It will arm you against the enemy better than stout shield or strong spear. 
One thing you ought to note here, the verb that is translated asks from you, some of your translations will include give to the one who begs from you. That's a word that's often used in the Gospels. It is usually translated ask, and it is usually translated ask with reference to prayer. Those who faithfully beg from the Lord's hand, in other words, will recognize everything they have belongs to someone else. There is not one thing that you have that you did not receive. It is all God's, given to you in trust. And those who faithfully beg from the Lord's hand will recognize everything they have belongs to someone else and will find it easier to give to others. Living in Christ's kingdom means that we have no regard for honor. It means that we don't overly regard our physical well-being. And thirdly, Jesus is telling us not to be concerned about our resource of time. Notice with me verse 41. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two. Pretty simple. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. This third illustration, the the final one for us, is of being pressed into service against your will. The term forces here that is translated is the Greek word angaruo. You don't know what that means. But it was a term that was borrowed from ancient Persia. In the Persian Empire, if they had uh, correspondence to send out, the king would grab whomever was standing by the street and press them into service so that they could take out his letters. If you've been sitting through Esther, you recognize this, that all of these edicts that were being sent out by King Ahasuerus were likely being carried by people pressed into service, grabbed by the collar, and pulled back and say, take this there. In Jesus' day, the Jews would have been very familiar with this. It wouldn't have been uncommon for a Roman soldier walking through the market to grab somebody by the collar and say, here, carry my shield or my sandals. And they became couriers for the soldier. Perhaps Roman law limited that forced service to one mile, approximately 4,200 feet in their day. But Jesus, the chief lawgiver, said, do not go one mile, go two. Jesus was suggesting a total transformation of outlook. And you can imagine how somebody might react to that. Wait, these are the men occupying our land Our abusers, the ones who are holding us back, they don't belong here. We do. These are our enemies. Jesus is instructing his people, rather than cultivating hatred for your enemies, the Romans, instead cultivate kindness. Cultivate a love for them. Rather, 
Use your freedom as an opportunity to serve. Do not assume, in other words, the mindset of an oppressed people. Those who are set free by Christ are free indeed and use that freedom to serve. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Do not be concerned about your honor. Do not be concerned about your physical well-being. Do not be concerned about your time or your service. Turn those things over to the Lord. Entrust yourself to Him. But here's what we ought to pay attention to very, very closely. Every one of these illustrations has a direct correlation to the final day of Jesus' life. Turn with me to Matthew 26. Each of these illustrations Jesus used has a parallel at the end of the Gospels. So let's turn our attention to Christ now as we conclude our reflection on his teaching. Read with me Matthew chapter 26, verse 67. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And now you know what they are doing. They are rebuking him. You are wrong. Repent. They spit in his face and struck him. And some, you see it there, slapped him. Saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? The one who instructs you to turn the other cheek gave his cheek. We read in Isaiah chapter 50 verse 6, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Turn to Matthew 27, verse 32. And as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They, do you see it there? Compelled this man to carry his cross It's the same word, Simon of Cyrene, taken by Roman soldiers and forced into service to carry the cross of Jesus Christ. In John 19, verse 23, don't turn there, we find that the soldiers tossed lots. They cast lots for what? Christ's cloak. As he hung naked and exposed upon the cross. Now look at Matthew 27, verse 57. Matthew 27, verse 57. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus, verse 58. He went to Pilate and begged for the body of Jesus. 
striking, begging, compelling, and clothing, all are connected to the final hours of Jesus' life. Each of the actions that Jesus compels you to take upon yourself in Matthew 5, 38 to 42, is one that he himself has done. And listen, not because he deserved any of it, but because you did. This is not his own humiliation that he is enduring. It's your humiliation. And it is only by looking to the cross of Jesus Christ that your instinct will change from hoarding these things to yourself your honor, your time, your possessions to giving. In this passage, Jesus is instructing you not to be selfish with your honor, with your material well-being, or your time. If we're honest, most of us sit like a dragon on a horde saying, Mine! My honor! My possessions, my time. Jesus is telling you to open your hand and give. When you're rebuked, receive it. Grace, by doing so, you will demonstrate to the world in a very visible and objective way that you are living for a kingdom that is yet to come. As James Montgomery Boyce states, these verses teach that a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ has no right to retaliation, no right to things, no right to his own time, and no right to his money. In other words, he holds all his possessions in trust from the Lord. Is that your perspective? And he is obliged to use them as Jesus did to help others. No doubt, seeking to conform to Jesus' demands here in this passage takes more than willpower, doesn't it? To relinquish your honor, to relinquish your material well-being, to relinquish your time takes inner discipline. A commitment to others that goes beyond what you can do naturally. This sort of commitment can only be done in you by the Holy Spirit. Have you asked Him to do this kind of work in you? Are you willing to live the kind of sacrificial life at 60, 70, 80, 90, that Jesus is demanding from you, most are not. But those who are ruled by the Spirit of God will say, yes, Lord, do this in me. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for the wisdom of your word, for the way that week in and week out, day by day, moment by moment as we explore your word and seek to understand the kind of people you would have us be, you challenge and correct us and turn us into the right path. 
But Lord, as we think about the suffering of our Savior, we remember that there is no insult which we don't deserve. There is no hardship in this life which should not be ours. If we were to claim all of our rights, O Lord, our fundamental right would be to the wrath and curse of God. It is our inheritance by nature to wallow in mud, to eat sawdust until the day of our death, and then to be plunged into the fiery pits of hell. That's our right. But, oh God, through Christ, all of this, the wallowing in the mud, the shame and guilt of sin, and the fiery wrath of God has been born in our behalf. Help us to look to Him, Lord, as our Savior to demonstrate His same lowliness of outlook in our own lives. We are nothing. Christ is everything. And we pray for His glory. Amen.